Thank you, Zoe. We're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to end up today as we uh, go through our Advent series. We're talking about the things which have been fulfilled. This idea coming from, from Luke chapter 1, that, that what Luke is trying to do is he, as he talks to Theophilus is to draw his attention to the ways that God has already been at work, to, to draw his attention to what God has already done in the world, uh, to remind him of what and to, to draw his attention to what God might do. And this is what we're called to do with this Advent season as well, that, that I want to draw our attention to what God has already done as an appetizer for us uh, as to what God is about to do. You know, and, and this is part of the Advent season. We're waiting for his movement, and we're waiting as he intervened in the fullness of time in Jesus, uh, and we're also waiting for him to return again, as we've already said. I'm sorry, I've forgotten where First Thessalonians is for a second. It's 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 uh, First Second Timothy. First. Where? Wait a minute. It's there. Okay, sorry. I have a degree in biblical studies. Um, okay, I just I just lost First Thessalonians for a minute there. It's fine. It's okay. So. But um, before we get there, I wanna, so I want us to have an appetizer for what God is about to do among us. And, and how do we operate in this season of waiting? That's what we're going to talk, talk about. But, but at, before we get there, I want to remind us again, because part of what Advent is doing is reminding us about what God, is, what, what God is actually doing, what he is about. And this is from Isaiah 61. And this is interesting because this is a passage that when Jesus begins his ministry in his hometown, as, as he begins his ministry in Nazareth and tries to declare to people who already know him what he is about, this is the passage that he reads and quotes from. And this is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed, anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And Jesus, when he read this, said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus came to do. So when we think of Advent, when we think of Jesus coming, this is what he intended to do at his coming. So as we wait again, as we wait again for Jesus to return, this is what we are expecting. This is what he, he understands his, atten- his intentions for the earth to be, to, to proclaim good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted. And I want to be careful as I say this, because I'm about to say something that could be considered dangerous by some, but it ought not to be. But as much as this is encouragement for those who are poor, for those who are oppressed, for those who are put upon, for those for whom this world does not work well, as much as this is encouragement for them, we also ought to understand this as a warning for those who are quite comfortable with the world as it is. It's one of the great dangers for Western Christianity, one of the great dangers for us who live in one of the most wealthy cities in the planet, that we get very comfortable with the world as it is, and we begin to fear, and we begin to push down and to push aside anything that might change the order of how the world is, because and in doing so, we push aside what Jesus could be bringing to this world. 
if we find ourselves where we are too comfortable in this world, then we ought to be concerned that we are not in line with the world that Jesus is bringing. If the thought of anything that disrupting this world is so frightening that we should be concerned, because when Jesus talks about this, and Jesus' mother specifically talks about the, the poor being filled up with good things and the rich being sent away empty. And Jesus' mother specifically talks about the prideful being torn down from their places of exaltation and the humble being lifted up. If we are amongst the rich, if we are amongst the exalted, we ought to hear this as a warning just as much as those who are poor and oppressed ought to hear this as an encouragement. So I want us to be really clear that when Jesus is when we are waiting for Jesus to come, this is what we are waiting for, a new world, a new way of being that involves uh, freedom for the oppressed and restoration for those who are put upon. This is not re- reinforcing a political or an, ide- or an economic ideology. Every one of us are going to have our worlds shaken by this world that Jesus is bringing. We ought to, uh, ought to, uh, ought to set ourselves up for that. He's not reinforcing a morality, a list of do. Jesus is not coming to make us all follow the correct list of do's and don'ts that have been handed down to us from a various group of people. And that's part of it, but that's not what Jesus is primarily doing. Jesus is primarily trying to set people free from that way of viewing the world. And we ought to be ready for this as well. But what ought we to be doing while we're waiting for this new world for, to arrive? What do we do in the meantime? Because in this part of the story, we understand that we're part we understand that this part of the story feels very long to us. But it also it feels like this part of the story doesn't really have that much of an impact sometimes. We believe that we're part of a story that goes from the beginning of history and the beginning of time and it ends with all things being made new and Christ returning and bringing his kingdom in full and heaven crashing into earth. That's where we believe that this story ends. And we believe that everything that needs, to, that needs to happen to ensure that that story happened, happened in Jesus on the cross. That in his life, death, and resurrection, that future was secured. And now we live in this, what some people have called long denouement, the long falling action of our story, where we're asking ourselves the question, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in this part of the story? Because it feels like most of the story is already written, including the ending. So how ought we to behave now? And as we work, and as we live, and as we love, and as we, as we entertain ourselves and occupy our time with the myriad things that we do, what deserves our time and attention? Because this world, as we understand, is very complex. And there are various empires at work some of which we see and are very obvious, some of which we don't see and are not quite as obvious. There are people that we encounter in ourselves that have issues and needs that we would love to address but we can't address with our own limited resources. There are changes that we want to see take place in the world that we're not sure if we can do that. But ha- and there's also this encouragement that we, and this, this constant drone of, of, of advice coming into our ears saying that we ought to be living our best life. And most of this drone of advertising we hear that tells us to live our best life somehow involves us purchasing someone for something from someone else. But there's this constant drone that says our lives are not what they ought to, ought to be. And we're heading into a season where we're going to be getting 
bombarded with people that, and, and some of you if, you, if you're in any kind of leadership thing and then you get this list of emails that people just send you, how to make 2018 your best year ever. And I don't, and I want 2018 to be your best year ever. I pray that 2018 is your best year ever. But it's important for us to, to, to wrestle with the fact that what would genuinely make 2018 our best year ever? Because that ought to line up with the best year that God has as well. And I think it's interesting as we do this that we look at the question, what do we do in the meantime, that we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, because the book of 1 Thessalonians is all about waiting. The book of 1 Thessalonians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and people were asking, what do we do as we wait for the end to come? And there was concern about what the end was going to look like and when it was going to happen and what ought we to do in the meantime. And, and Paul addresses that in this book, and this is how he, he ends it. This is his final summation for the, for the church at Thessalonica about how they ought to live in the meantime, waiting for the day of the Lord to come. And this is what he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. So this is the first thing. And I want to admit that both for Paul and for me, this feels a tad self-indulgent. To start off this in the meantime with, with point number one being take care of those who work among you. So that includes me and that includes all of your elders. And you guys do a, a, a pretty good job of that. But I think that it's important to recognize and to take care of those people who are helping you be who God has called you to be. And I think that this is a really important thing for us to do if we genuinely want to walk down this make 2018 your best year ever path, is to ask yourself the question, who are the people that are trying to help me be that person that I've been called to be? Who are the people in my life that are, that are encouraging me, that are admonishing me, that are expecting me to follow the Lord as best I can, who, 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 who care for me in the Lord? And if you don't have anyone in your life that is doing that, then, then, then let's try and find you somebody, some more people. Let's try and work on that. Because the expectation is that you're going to be around people and caring for people who care about you in the Lord and who are willing to admonish you, Right? That's an important thing. So, so let's take care of those people and work on them. And then the next thing he says is this. Live in peace with one another. So our first, if we're going to follow the will of God, if we're going to make 2018 our best year ever, if we're, going to, if we're going to accomplish this, the first thing that we need to do, even beyond finding our own goals, even beyond goal setting, even beyond uh, arranging our, our administrative lives better, even beyond setting our budgets for the next year, the first thing that we ought to be doing as individuals, as families, is live at peace with one another. Figure out a way not to carry the same angers that you had last year, the, the same angers that you had yesterday into tomorrow. Figure out a way to make sure that that bitterness changes from yesterday to tomorrow. Try and figure out a way to genuinely see other people's points of view and live at peace with one another. As a subject of that, so this is interesting because that's the point two. Point two A, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now this is incredibly important and I think incredibly invasive and 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 difficult to grasp for the especially in our day and age because 
we live in a social media world where we are constantly surrounded by people who are both idle and disruptive. We live with networks of people who are desperately trying to make money by distracting you from what is important and by making you fearful and angry of things over which you have no control. And the, the call on us as followers of Jesus is to warn those who are idle and disruptive. To, to, to warn the social media disruptors who try to engage you in online arguments that don't make a difference in your life. Bloggers who try to, to rile each other up. We're called to warn them and say, hey, you're not helping us live at peace with one another. Stop it. And if that means that you got to mute a lot of people or just turn the whole thing off altogether, that might be what you have to do. That might be what we have to do. But warn those who are idle and disruptive. And if you're the person who is out there causing people to get, their, to get wound in a tizzy online from the comfort of your basement, stop it. Stop it. Right? It's okay to tell people to stop that. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone, okay? Take care of each other. Take care of ourselves. This is a complex world, and this is fascinating. Make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And I love this statement. I love this statement. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, okay? So this is a basic idea that we're not going to, that, 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 if we're going to engage in some sort of reciprocity with people who have impacted us, we're not just going to try and hurt them as badly as they've hurt us. That there has to be some sort of redemptive action, some sort of redemptive goal to our responsive actions. That's an important thing for us to engage in because i got to be honest with you, our instincts, right? Somebody cuts you off in traffic, what's your instinct? Lay on the horn, cut them off back, right? That's our first instinct is to, is to respond with evil for evil. You punch me, I punch you, Right? We, that we're a counterpunching society, right? But what we've been called to do is to, is to take a step back and to think about the reciprocity of our actions. What are these genuinely doing? What kind of world is being produced by our responsive actions? And, and not to say that we're gonna, we always need to respond in a way that makes our, uh, those who have hurt us uh, feel good. That's not what we've been called to do. But we need to make sure that there is redemptive process in our action. Don't pay back wrong for wrong, but overcome evil with good. And strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone. Everyone else. I love this statement because the reality is we live in a complex world. We know this, right? And the difficult part of trying to think about what is good for each other and for everyone else is not simple. And anyone that tries to tell you that it is simple to figure out what is good for you and for everyone else, what is good for each other and for everyone else, anyone that tries to tell you that is simple is lying. And if anyone that gives you a five-step plan to get there they're not telling you the truth. It's hard. And we only have limited resources, and we only have the ability to share with a, with a, with a certain number of people, and we can only make a difference in, in, in a certain small number of ways. And, and, and it's really hard to try and do what is good for everyone and for what is best for, for everyone else. But if we look at the Greek, and I love the, 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 that it responds when we look deeper at this, in the Greek it says, but always diokite, to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And diokite means pursue or aggressively chase. And you would use this in the positive. 
If you were uh, if you were earnestly seeking something good, if you were trying to win a race, you would diakite that race. You would you would be pursuing a win in that race. In the negative sense, if you were if you were this could be used in a legal context that if you were aggressively pursuing a persecution of somebody, they would use it in a legal sense that you would that you would diokite that. But but our call is not to always get it right. Our call is not to be perfect. In, our, in, in, in doing what is good for each other and for everyone else. Our call is to aggressively chase it down, to think hard, to think long, to try hard to do what is best for each other and for everyone else, to aggressively chase. We're given room in the meantime in this idea of chasing for the complexity of the world and how difficult it is and, uh, uh, to, to do what is right, and grace for how hard it can be to do what is good for each other. And what's interesting is, and what I want to change our minds about on something, is that as we aggressively pursue what is good for each other and for, for everyone else, is that this opens the door to a ton of action, but it closes the door to something really important. That in this, in this command, and this is a command, by the way, in this command there's no room for apathy. There's no room for not caring about the world and saying it's already gone on its way, I'm just going to let it go. There's no room for cynicism. Well, we can't do anything right, so we're not going to do anything at all. There's not room, and this is something that I've been incredibly guilty of over my life, there's not room for being cool. Not that I've been cool, but there's not room... (laughs) There's not room for that cool sneering from the sidelines that says, oh, look at those people trying things. Look at those people. Don't don't they realize that every step they make is two steps back? Don't they realize that every problem that they fix causes four more unintended problems? Uh, You know, that, that sneering on the sideline where look how smart I am because I can analyze how badly everyone else is doing, but yet I do nothing myself. There is no room for that in this command. There's no room for that in the body of Christ. And I need to hear that as conviction that there's no room for that in me. There's no room for me to be apathetic about the world. There's no room for me to be cynical about the world. But in the midst of this, we have been given a promise of how this world ends. And this world ends in justice. This world ends in peace. This world ends in healing for all people. That is where we are going. And if we know that that's how it's going to end, why on earth would we not try our best to bring that about now? Why on earth would we not give everything that we have to a goal that we know is going to be accomplished? Of course we do that. There is no room for us to be apathetic, but we always aggressively pursue, we chase down, we, we, we struggle and pursue to do what is good for each other and for, for everyone else. He continues, rejoice always. This is fascinating, rejoice always. Not when there is a very obvious reason to rejoice, Right? Not when we all agree that now is the rejoicing time, but rejoice always. And what's interesting is that when you look at the story of the people of Israel, as you go through their songbook of the Psalms, as you go through the th- how they celebrated, when they didn't have a reason to celebrate now, they celebrated what God had done in the past. They said, okay, well, we don't have reason 
to celebrate now, but remember when we used to be slaves in Egypt and God brought us out of that? Let's rejoice about that. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party about that. Remember how amazing that was? So we rejoice always for what God has done. And then failing that, and I love this in the Psalms, and, we don't, and I don't think that I do this enough. Probably we don't do this enough. They celebrated what God was going to do in the future. They say, let's have a party for when God brings justice. Let's have a party for when God frees the oppressed. Let's have a party for when God get, brings freedom to the captives. We know he hasn't done it yet, but we know that he's going to. So we're going to have a party and rejoice what God is about to do. Rejoice always. That's a command. It's a non-negotiable. And the, the challenge for us is in the midst of our circumstances, which make us feel small and put on, and that there is nothing to, to uh, rejoice, but that we rejoice anyway. We pray anyway, continually, regardless of circumstances. We give thanks in all circumstances, because if you've undergone the, 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 the discipline of saying, okay, I'm going to be grateful today. I don't feel like I have anything to be grateful today. I'm going to make a list of things that I ought to be grateful today. Once you start that list, you never stop. It's the matter of the first step of undertaking the discipline of getting to the point where you're giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And this is one of my favorite verses, and it's so hard to take out of context, but it's one of my favorite verses because it, I, I meet, and I'm the kind of person that struggles all the time with, what am I supposed to do? And especially for young folk and, and even for some older folk, they, they, they look at the Bible, and, they're, and they, they're following God, and they're trying their best, and they're like, what am I supposed to do? What is God's will for my life? And there's a lot of, of fear and anxiety that, did I miss God's will for my life? Did I somehow like veer off on the wrong path and, and, and go down this place where, where God wanted me to do this and now I'm doing this instead and, and God isn't as satisfied with me now as he would have been had I done that other thing? And I, wa I don't want to make a mistake in my relationship and my work and I don't want to, uh, what is God's will for my life? Well, if rejoice. Rejoice. But am I supposed to go to vet college? I don't know. Rejoice. Rejoice. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what you've been called to do. So I understand that lots of people have questions about how am I supposed to use my time, talents, treasures towards the glorification of God and, and, and his kingdom. That's amazing, and it's a good question to ask. But turn down the anxiety. Turn down the fear that you're going to make a wrong decision. Because if this is at the core of your decision-making, if this is at the core of you looking for what God is calling you to do, then you're going to be fine. Go to vet college or don't go to vet college or, you know, get your welder's ticket or don't get your welder's ticket. That is not the most important thing that God has called you to do. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He continues, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. This is another way and an implication of that, of that banishing of cynicism and apathy. Because it's easy to see while well, uh, somebody says, well, the Lord told me to do this, and then we cross our arms and say, well, that's dumb, right? 
We don't have that option. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't say that the, the Lord doesn't speak that way. The Lord speaks whatever way he wants to. That's not our business to police how the Lord speaks. But in the midst of this, let's not turn our brains off. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Is this word from the Lord that we are hearing congruent with what we see in Scripture? Does it line up with the world that God is creating? Does it line up with what God has done in the past? Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil, okay? This isn't a call for us to, to be open and engaged at the same time. It's easy for us to close down and say, it's, it's easy for us to say, I'm just going to shut off all access to the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to shut off what God is doing in everybody else's life because it's led me astray in the past. I'm just going to stay focused on this one thing and nothing else is ever going to break in here. And God is saying, God is always trying to be a new thing. So he's saying, no, be open and turn on your brain. Be open, open-hearted, but, but, but I have given you the tools to work with these things. He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us. We needn't be afraid as we walk through this world, but he has given us the ability to discern and to not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. How much of our eternal destiny and the way that this story ends depends on us? None of it. None of this depends on us. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So we can trust and be hopeful that in the midst of a world that is confusing, in the midst of not understanding what is always the best thing to do in any given situation, in the midst of not understanding exactly how to live out the will of God for our lives in every situation, in the midst of being confused about who we are and who other people are and what we ought to do, in the midst of being confused about what is, the, what is this going to look like as we go forward and we, and we change in this world, we can, we can turn down our anxiety and our fear about what is going on and remember that all of this depends on the faithfulness of one who has already proved himself faithful. That all of this depends on God. That all of this depends on God. All of this depends on God, and none of it depends on you. Now, in the midst of that, I hope that that doesn't cause you to shrink back and say, I'm just going to take a lot of naps now, because it all depends on God. But what that ought to do is cause us to go forward and move with so much courage and so much joy and so much peace because we understand that even, with, even when we make mistakes, if we're making mistakes in the, in the right direction, God has called us and is with us. And that everything depends on him and the story that he is writing now and for eternity. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So in the meantime... How ought we to live? We've narrowed that down. And there's not as many specific instructions in that as we would like there to be. We would like to be, I should live in such and such a way and in such and such a place with such and such a budget. But God doesn't work that way. He says, in the midst of the confusion of your life, do anything and love Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and let those be the primary guiders of your actions and his story will continue to be written as he is writing it. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you that we can trust you in the meantime. We're thankful that in the meantime that you have, we have not been abandoned. We're, we're, we're thankful that in the meantime our actions still have meaning because of the world that you are ma- making and the story that you are writing. So as we come to your table and as we sing songs to you, remind us that your Holy Spirit is with us in the meantime. Remind us that you are present in the meantime. And remind us that you are are making us new in the meantime. So that we don't leave here thinking that this morning didn't matter, or this afternoon doesn't matter, or tomorrow doesn't matter. But that we... Go trusting and loving you, thankful for the gifts of time that you've given us to do what you have called us to do. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're about to meet at uh, God's table. And I think that it's fascinating that in the meantime, he has given us his table. And as we ask questions about how we ought to operate in the world and, and, and what we ought to focus our attention on, the one thing that he has given us consistently to remind ourselves of what is good and what is true is to say, do this in remembrance of me, remembering the Lord's death until he comes again. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he shared it with his brothers and his disciples and said, this is, this is my, my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. This is the new covenant in my blood. And in the meantime, we remember this. We remember that all that needed to be done for us to experience salvation and reconciliation with God has been done in Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And this table is open for anyone who would come and experience the grace and the peace that is found in Jesus in the meantime. And if you would like to come forward as we come forward, please come forward and, and we will partake together. If you would like to remain in your seat, then someone will, uh, will, uh, uh, someone will, will, will serve you. Uh, if, you if you'd prefer to remain in your seat, that's fine as well. But let's take a moment in the meantime to give our time and attention wholeheartedly to Jesus who is doing and writing this story for us as we speak. Let's take a moment in silence.